You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we welcome back our past guest, Luke Holman, for his brand new book release, Software Profit Streams. Luke is a four-time author, three-time founder, keynote speaker, and internationally recognized expert in agile software development. On today's show, which is filmed live at the Multiverse in Palo Alto, we talk about what is system thinking and how is it used? What are some of the tools one would use to navigate the fog of uncertainty? When should one think about raising prices? When does software eat hardware? What is solution lifecycle management? And much more. This is an amazing interview with the crowd and everyone fully engaged, so I know you're going to love it. All right, now and with that, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Luke, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm super excited to have you back. The first episode you're on, a lot of comments after, a lot of feedback, all great on everything that you mentioned. And I'm kind of expecting the same thing for this episode as well. But for our audience, well, first off, can you tell us about, well, the book and why we're here today? And then also let's go back and give an intro to your career up until this point. Okay, well, the book, we'll start with the book. It's pretty straightforward. If you think about pricing and licensing, there's actually a bunch of books out there, these kind of classic books, and they're for boomers, by boomers, and they're text dense, and they're kind of boring, and they're not very well designed. And more importantly, they're not designed for software and software is a unique thing. I'm not selling water when I'm selling software. I'm licensing intellectual property and the manifestations of that and the manner in which I want to create profit are very different. And so we decided that it was time to put a stake in the ground and say, look, we have to have a book and a resource for people who are pricing and licensing software. Okay. So first off, well, thank you for creating this book and writing it. And for our audience out there, you know, anyone that buys it tonight, $100 goes to Red Cross and it's already an Amazon bestseller. So actually let's get some applause for the Amazon bestseller already. But Luke, tell us about your career up until this point. What gives you and your co-founder, Jason, co-writer, Jason, kind of the qualifications to write this book? Well, part of it is just the school of hard knocks. I started as an engineer. So I have a bachelor's and master's degree in computer science and engineering. I started very humbly. So my first career job was pulling cable underneath a data center raised floor for electronic data systems. If anyone remembers EDS. So I was a floor grub. And then I literally worked my way from beneath the ground up. I spent 10 years at EDS. I eventually was vice president of engineering at a subsidiary, moved to a startup object space in Dallas, Texas. From there, came to Silicon Valley in 96 as part of the ride up to the internet. Had a chance to work with some amazing people. Daniel Lewin was my boss at a company called Origin, and we did the first patent data warehouse. So the first patent portfolio management system. From there, I tried to start my own company teaching financial literacy services in March of 2000. Not optimal timing. (laughs) So that failed. And so that I had to get a job. And from that job, I did a turnaround for Heidi Roizen Preview Systems that was acquired by an Israeli firm, helped package that up. And during the acquisition process, talking to the CEO, Yanki Marglit, who's well known in the Israeli tech community, he said, here's our strategy. And I said, well, I think this is a better strategy. And he said, you're right. 
but you have to come in and implement it. So I took over VP of engineering and product management for an Israeli company, learned how to do international product development, international product management. We have dev teams and customers around the world. So the dev teams were in Aviv, in Munich, in Portland, in Santa Clara, blending all these things together with far less technology capabilities than we have now for distributed teams. From there, when the first Middle East war happened, I decided that traveling in the Middle East with growing family wasn't the best choice. So I started a consulting firm. That consulting firm eventually split. That's when I brought in Jason so I could split the firm. Jason became the CEO of the firm. I went to do a software startup. I thought that would be easy, right? You have a great software idea, go get Silicon Valley funding. And you know how the story goes, right? Didn't happen. So we built the company anyway, and we did the old fashioned customer funding. And in that process, we bootstrapped a B2B SaaS company, which is challenging, but we sold it. A good outcome for all the people involved in the transaction. In that process, learned a lot about business models and pricing and licensing throughout my entire career, product management and owning the price and looking at how different business models are associated with hardware, with software, with data. How do we deal with rationalization of pricing across international boundaries and international markets? Jason was leading Applied Frameworks at the time. His background is in product management for large companies. So he was teaching product management, teaching pricing, teaching how to go to market with an agile flair. So there's a substrate of agile software development involved. If you look at our backgrounds, Jason's heavily involved in the Scrum Alliance and the Scrum community. I'm heavily involved in the safe or scaled agile community. And then I started the company, which we talked about in the first podcast, First Root. Haven't quite figured out product market fit. So I'll come clean and some of my founders in the room will know how tricky that is. So I've come back to Applied Frameworks and now we're taking these years of experience and we're putting it into a book that is stunningly beautifully designed. And that was one of our goals. We wanted to be remarkable in the way that we presented this information so that people could in fact use it. I know this question is going to be off on a tangent there, but you mentioned the Agile and Scrum. How are the two kind of backgrounds between yours and Jason complementary? How are they kind of opposition? Well, there's no opposition. The complementary part is Jason and I are both known in our communities for working behind the scenes and in the infrastructure. So for those of you who know Scrum, and I'm sure many people in the room know Scrum, Jason was actually one of the five people who were on the committee that designed the learning objectives for the Scrum classes. So Jason's worked behind the scenes and it's okay to work behind the scenes. You don't always have to be in the limelight. I did a similar thing for Scaled Agile when my company was acquired by Scaled Agile. So I joined what's called the Scaled Agile Framework Team. And that's where we kind of design the method or the framework. And then we write the articles and write the classes. The connection point is Scrum is very well suited for a certain kind of complexity and a certain kind of dynamic interaction, usually on the smaller side. Scaled Agile by its nature is designed for larger organizations with more complex cyber physical systems. Okay. So you guys came together. When did you decide, okay, let's put all our knowledge down and start writing this book. And for the audience, if you want to show them kind of what the book, the origin of it. Yeah. So The origin of the book was Jason decided that he really wanted to make a contribution. And and when you think about authors, right, we're not writing how to program in 21 days. We're trying to make an enduring contribution. So Jason started the process of writing the book. And then I came in and I shook it up a little bit, admittedly. And I said, we're going to write it by hand and we're going to hire a designer and they're going to make it beautiful. So if you want to see what the book looked like, you can literally see it was 
written by hand. And a FedAR designer who I had worked with in the past, he took these designs and these ideas. And if you skim through the book, you'll see that it's this, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous book. You should buy it. It's got good content too. So this gorgeous book, who can benefit reading it? Well, let's take a step back and talk about the problem. Most companies struggle with pricing in some really fundamental capacity. Sometimes they don't realize it, but all they're doing is cost plus pricing. They'll figure out, well, this is what it costs and I need to make certain margin to make my investors happy. So this is what I'm going to price it at. And they have no real thorough process or thoughtful analysis of the value being provided. In the agile community, what we're hearing a lot about is this concept called a value stream and value stream mapping. And we got to produce value. Listen, Beyonce said, put a ring on it. We say, put a number on it. So you can't just have value, right? What is the CEO going to do with value? What are your investors going to do with value? They need profit. Furthermore, you can't run a company without profit. You can run for a while, but you cannot create a sustainable organization without profit. And even in my own experience at Continuo, the company I sold, like, yeah, we thought we would take in some VC funding and grow. And after a while, we're like, screw it. We're making enough money and we're making growth. We're making profit. We can live forever and we can continue to grow. Now, could we have grown? So you had a company in Silicon Valley without taking any VC money. Indeed, I did. Silence. (laughs) (laughs) And I sold it for less than a lot of people and made a lot more. (laughs) There's this equity thing. Have you heard about that? It matters. Managing your cap table. So yeah, but back to this, who can benefit from the book? Well, literally everyone, because if you have a company, you have to put a price on it. And the issue is that many people approach pricing by looking at the number and pricing is never a number. Pricing is a system and it's a system of designed choices that have to be thoughtfully put together so that I can understand how I'm designing that system so that I'm getting the right outcome for both me and my customers. And our focus is on sustainability. And I don't mean sustainability in areas that are beyond our control. Like I'm not talking about manufacturing sustainability and that's really important and things like that. We're talking about can the company create enough revenue over time to sustain and grow itself? You mentioned profit stream. Can you talk about the software profit stream a little bit deeper? Sure. In the agile community, especially, we're seeing value streams, which is some sequence of deliverables that are associated with producing a solution. And those value streams are associated with some element of software. We're saying that element of software, that value stream, it has to evolve and it has to be evolving into knowing what my costs are, and knowing what my revenue and my pricing and my licensing model are or how I've designed them so that I can, in fact, create a profit. And it's this ongoing thing. We worked with a company. I can name drop some companies, can't name drop others. But one of the companies we work with is a startup in the Boston area, Noify. And they're funded by a partner of ours, a VC firm, Companion Ventures. And we have a relationship with Companion where they just run every one of their portfolio companies through this process because every one of their portfolios companies needs profit. So when we started with Noify, they had hit enough to be funded in terms of ARR, but they weren't, their growth was stalling. And so we ran them through our process where we look at how to identify value. How are you packaging? What are the price points? And we were able to help them do two things. First, the founder was like, I think I'm going to grow through freemium. And we're like, don't do freemium. For the record, we are against freemium. 
Try it again. We are against freemium. I think you already answered one question from the audience later on. How do I feel about freemium? Yeah. Ask me. I'm against it. And by having them analyze using the processes to find in the book, we were able to help them launch new pricing, launch new packaging in three months. And they went from 16% conversion on their annual plans to 66% conversions. Let those numbers sink in. Pretty profound. I'm letting it sink in. <laughs> Working through your book with you guys helping, is it only for companies when they're about to launch a product or can it be for a more developed company? I'm just kind of curious where in that life cycle can you guys step in? At any time. So the book cover has the depiction of the full solution life cycle, which is new product development, launch, and then you're going up the classically known as the S-shaped curve of adoption from Everett Rogers to fusion of innovation characterized through crossing the chasm and Jeffrey Moore. And so we start looking at that solution market life cycle, we've helped companies at all stages of that before they launch, determining the price points that are appropriate, post-launch, how do I evolve? And one of the mistakes that companies make, so here's, we'll start dropping some facts and some gems for y'all so you can write them down. But one of the mistakes that people make is they'll choose a strategy and then they assume that strategy is appropriate over the course of the solution market life cycle. That's not true. If I'm evolving my offering over the solution market life cycle, if I'm adding more value, if I'm adding more features, if I'm creating a different approach to the market, I might want to change my strategy. I certainly want to consider changing my pricing. We worked with one startup who was doing really well and we just said to the founder, so when was the last time you changed your pricing? Never. How long have you been in business? Two years. I'm like, okay, I think we can help you. <laughs> so just by analyzing how the product is evolving over the course of the solution market lifecycle, you can design price point changes that allow you to recoup the value you're putting into your offering. So how often, yes, because you just said it depends on where it is in the life cycle, but how often should they be reviewing this quarterly, every six months? For faster growing startups or for newly introduced offerings in larger companies, the recommendation that we write is about every three to six months. As the product matures, the price points tend to solidify and the relationship that you have with your customers tend to solidify. So those are usually every six months and not longer than a year. A related question would be, what are the triggers that would motivate a company to consider changing the price. And there's really three main triggers. There's time, which we've been talking about. Just flat out, put a timer on your pricing. If you haven't looked at it as a startup every six months, do it. Just put it in your calendar. The other kinds of triggers are external triggers to the organization. It could be regulatory compliance triggers. It could be socioeconomic factors. It could be expanding into new markets. It could be a supplier changing their price point for you or offering something different. And there are internal triggers. And those internal triggers would be the things that you're doing to enhance the value of your offering. And when do you change your price point to recoup and really earn the money that you're putting into your offering? So those are the really the three triggers. And then from those triggers, we get responses. Do I want to adjust my pricing? Do I want to adjust my packaging? For the adjusting the pricing, say you are a company, not yours, but another one that <laughs> is looking out for VC funding, angel funding and that. How far in advance should they kind of look over their pricing model before going out to raise? And my question there is, say they go through the process, they change everything this week. If a month goes by, is that enough time to then show proof that this is the new norm for the company? Or does it need to be six weeks, three months? When can the new price be a value point for those investment talks? 
So I want to knock off two parts of that. First, I'm not opposed to venture capitalists. For those of you in the room who might want to invest in one of my companies, right? I'm not opposed to this. I just think it's not the only way to be successful. I think the question that you're asking about is better answered through the kind of offering that you're selling. So I'm going to sound like a consultant and say, it depends. And when a consultant say it depends, what we really mean is it's a system, right? So pricing is a number, is a system. So we have to look at the dynamics of the system. In my career, I've sold apps for $4.99 and I've sold enterprise software BMW for a million bucks or more a year licenses. So when you're looking at price point changes, you're going to make the determination of is the price point change or the packaging change sticking kind of based on the nature of the offering itself. So in a consumer market, if it's something that would be considered a, a lower priced good, you could determine that in a few weeks or a few months for a more comprehensive change, you're going to want to vet that. Or if you're even in the consumer market, if you're selling something more expensive, you're going to want to do probably a little bit more market research up front to help you inform the price point change. Or in the B2B world, you're going to do some customer interactions or customer research to inform the price point change because the time lag of the result of that change is going to be longer. Now, heading into funding, I would say that what you want to show the investors is that you have a perspective on pricing where it's intentionally designed. We, one of the other elements in the book is we believe that pricing is no different than any other design choice. So you have to think it through. And if I'm an investor and hint, I have invested in companies. One of the things that I use as part of my vetting process is just tell me how you derived your price. What was your thought process? How did you think it through? And when do you think it will change? So rather than saying to the to potential investor, like we've got it nailed, that's like saying you've got product market fit nailed. You don't. It comes and then you have to adjust and stay in product market fit. With pricing, you have to have a point of view that's thoughtful. And that's going to speak to an investor more than here's my number. When you've had those conversations with startups, how often do they not have an answer to that question or what type of answer do they normally give? Most of the time, they don't have an answer. We do tend to do a little bit more work with startups that have more of a technical founder than, say, a marketing founder. When you see the marketing and sales founders, they tend to have a little bit further developed pricing awareness. Well, when you're dealing with technical founders, many times I'm like, uh, I don't know. I just went online and look what the competitors charge. And so that would be the competitive pricing strategy. It's a strategy. It's not necessarily the best strategy. Another company we were working with that I can name is Fullcast. And Fullcast does revenue optimization. And I remember when we were going through our process, one of the other things that happens in startups is startups overweight functional or tangible benefits and startups underweight intangible benefits of their solution. So we were talking, I can't charge more. I'm like, why? Because we're competing against such and such a large company that has nasty salespeople up the road. He's like, we're competing against them and they have more features than we do. I'm like, okay, well, why do people buy from you? Just talk to me. Oh, well, they tell us that we're easier to work with, that we're more responsive, that our service people are more friendly and they don't mind talking to us when they call and that we're willing to listen. I'm like, so you've just listed four intangible benefits that are driving the sale of your offering. Intangible benefits relate to our emotional side of how we make a purchase. They're also the largest part of most companies' balance sheets. What's the intangible benefit of Coca-Cola? Well, it's called goodwill. So once we went through the analysis that we outlined in the book where we're not 
only focused on functional benefits, they realized our intangible benefits are a massive reason people are buying. And we can, in fact, raise our price and change our packaging to emphasize that. And they did. And it's been very successful. How can a company go about kind of sharing those intangible benefits to either potential investors or to recruit new hires? Or like how can they kind of show the value of that to people to, to get further along in something? Well, you can... Start with why, as Simon Sinek would say, and then let that permeate some of your marketing messages and some of your sales messages. It's okay to actually be intentional about that. So a way to make those intangible benefits more obvious or more visible is to simply state them. So for Fullcast, we are nice to work with. It's okay to say that. Like, we're a good company to work with. Here's why. We'll listen to you. We'll talk with you. We shy away from that because we're, a lot of Silicon Valley still has speeds and feeds. And as an engineer, I love speeds and feeds too. But there's more to that. The emotional benefit. I have a cybersecurity solution. Okay, that's great for intrusion detection. But how does it make me feel? Do I feel safe? Oh, that's interesting. That's an intangible benefit. That's important. Is there anything more about the system thinking mindset that we can, that you'd like to dive into before? Next questions. Yeah, there's a canvas that's associated with the book and the canvas has three main rows. The first row is the solution sustainability. How do I understand my customers and their needs over time? And how do I evolve my solution? The second row is economic sustainability. How do I design a pricing model? And how do I create a profit engine to drive more transactions and larger transactions over time? The final row or the kind of the foundation row is what we call relationship sustainability. And relationship sustainability breaks out into three areas. My solution licenses. What do I need to in-license to offer my solution? We all know we don't go alone, right? Any Anyone in this room is building a company you've got a ton of in licenses. So what are those relationships and how do those work? Our customer licenses, the license that we offer to our customers, our terms of service, our privacy policies. And then in the center of it for us is compliance. What is the posture that you want to have relative to the compliance that is associated with your offering or governing your offering? So a concrete example, when I was running Contenio, we were very proud that A, 40% of our revenue came from Europe and B, we were GDPR compliant on the day that GDPR went into law and then went into effect. Because we as a company cared about being compliant. If you're offering games to kids under 13, do you care about COPA or are you going to try and avoid it? Like what is your corporate posture, your corporate culture, your corporate value? And those matter. And so I think that as part of the system, we've done a lot of cleanup for companies. I won't name this company, but we were working with a company in Chicago and they're like, we don't think we've signed the right license agreement with Costco. It's a smaller company. So Costco's lawyers managed to insert a clause into the relationship that said every time that Costco paid for an upgrade, Costco got an automatic one-year extension on support for the whole product. And they're like, Costco keeps buying these little things from us. I'm like, okay, you see this clause in your license agreement? Not a good clause. So I think that's part of the system because we embody that relationship through a legal agreement and that legal agreement can be harmful to our growth and to our relationship because we have a responsibility to make a profit for our employees and for our customers. How can I improve my offering if I'm not making a product? I have these people like engineers. I'd like to pay them. So we have this responsibility to create the right kind of sustainability with our customers. So speaking of customers, in this process of prices 
discovery and change. And where does the customer feedback come in? Well, there's a couple of areas. One is, are they buying? And there's a variety of techniques that we describe in the book. My power base, my experience base tends to be a little bit more B2B. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the B2B side. One thing that you're that we do and that you should do as a best practice is what's called discount analysis, which is you're looking at the price point you give to your salespeople, and then you're looking at the actual deal terms over time and you're plotting how many times am I discounting and what's the nature of the discounts. With one company we work with, they simply didn't have a discount policy. So the salespeople didn't know what they could do. And you could see across the sales organization, the discount analysis where, well, one rep was always closing deals and that rep was always discounting. And everyone's like, hey, can we do that? We're like, no, you need a policy on that. So that's one technique that you can use. There, there are other techniques. So part of what I'm saying is that there's market research techniques. There's also the actual behavior of your market, of your customers as they purchase and use your offering. I'm kind of curious about, because I mean, so many companies out there, they'll go out and do surveys before building anything. Where in the surveys should price come up? There's a couple of places where pricing is useful and there's some higher end techniques. One is known as conjoint analysis, where I'm looking at different attributes in different configurations to determine different price points. Conjoint tends to be a little more associated with the hardware world where I'm manufacturing something that is not very malleable. Conjoint can inform packaging and a pure software solution where I have a little bit more flexibility. There are other techniques that you can use from surveys depending on the nature of your software. When we use financial analysis, sometimes people imply or seek to think that the financial analysis is only done in B2B markets. That's not true. Financial analysis is done in consumer markets. For example, I'm, I'm going to put solar panels on my home. What's the payback period and what's the relationship? If I'm going to buy a new car, I'm, even if I'm getting an EV, what's the total cost of ownership? Do I have to upgrade my electrical system at home to be able to charge my car in my garage? And how does that work? So those kinds of elements would feed into your total cost of ownership. And that's not something you need to survey. That's just doing your homework as a product manager or as a CEO of a founder to say, what is the offering I'm making and what does my customer have to do to get the full benefits of it? And are they incurring costs that are beyond my price point that would affect their purchase decision? So say your company, it's growing, it's doing great, and you think you have the right price point. If you were to change things, there's risk in that. There's risk in suddenly changing this or changing that. When, if the company's, if it's going great, when should you take that risk to try to test a new price? Well, if the company's going great, I'm assuming that it's not static. And if it's going great, I'm assuming that it's got enough to keep adding value to its offering. So there may be a conscious decision by the leadership team and the investors to say, look, we don't want to raise prices because we're acquiring market share. I'm not a fan of lose money and make it up in volume. However, right? <laughs> it's not, not a fan. I just love that. <laughs> lose money, make it up in volume. Yeah, not a fan. Because somewhere along the line, the unit pricing actually has to flip and be profitable. Tony Fidel's new book, Build, has a wonderful chapter on this. Like, look, maybe your first version isn't profitable, but buy your third or fourth version. Yeah, you got to get there. But if this company is going great, it's going, things are going great, pricing is going great. I would say, okay, if it's been six months and I'm going great, then maybe it's going too great. If I'm never losing a deal, pricing isn't high enough. 
flat out. So I'd want to know, can I push it a little bit? And you need a spreadsheet because people get freaked out. Oh, how do I deal with pricing? If I raise my price, I'm going to lose some customers. Well, you model it. And there's a certain point where, yes, the price point increase will cover over time the quote unquote customer defection. Interesting. In your book, many people have heard of the business model canvas, but yeah. in your book, you have the, I believe it's the profit stream canvas. Indeed it is. Can you talk about this? Yeah. So I'll come clean. Alex Osterwalder, who wrote Business Model Gen- generation and is the inventor of the business model canvas. He's a friend. He's actually written an endorsement for the book and he loves it. It fills, it's a compliment canvas, right? So if you, if three of the main canvases or canvi, what plural, canvi? (laughs) So you've got the business model canvas and you've got the value proposition design canvas, or you have the lean canvas, but none of them actually talk about how do I set the price? In fact, there's only one page in all of Alex's books in value proposition design, page 41, where they talk about product market fit, company fit, and then growth. And they're like, hey, when you hit to this stage, you've got the right price and you're making money and you're growing. What's the right price, right? So many, Eric Reese, you gotta have the right price. Okay, Eric, how do I set the price? We wanted to answer that question. How do you set the price? So we love those other books. We think they're great. We're friends with those authors, but there's a gap in that knowledge base that we're filling. And there's one part of the book that I, when I was reading, I thought was very interesting. And it said, software eats hardware. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, there's a section in the book. When we were designing the book, we had it in the beginning and then we moved it to to the back where we're seeing this massive growth of companies who are adding software. They're software enabling their solutions. Story, everyone's heard this story in the company, but I got to share it with y'all. My wife's a big cook. She's a great cook. After 18 years, our oven gave out. And so we bought a new Wolf stove. Kid you not, the Wolf stove comes with an app. Now, I don't know why I can't get my lazy butt off the couch and go turn on my stove, but I don't have to anymore. I'm watching the game. I can hit preheat. It's awesome. But think about that. How much money did it take them to build that? Who owns the data? Are they monitoring my data? Is it GDPR compliant? Are they going to aggregate the data across those ovens and stoves? And what if this guy who knows security walks into my house and starts messing with my dinner? Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Like, invite me over. Watch what happens. (laughs) So software is eating hardware. And we know this, right? We're putting software into everything. And software will be in everything. And you can find software. There's a, for horse racing, there's now a special saddle that has 300 data points per second coming in on a cloud-based solution to optimize the saddle's connection with the horse for the jockey and the jockey's position. Because horse racing is a big deal, right? Software is hitting everything. And what we're finding is that we're Silicon Valley. Like we kind of get this, right? We know how to price and licenses, but those people don't. They don't know license agreements. We worked with one, I won't name this company, but I want you to think 18 billion in revenue is just one division of this company. And they're like, hey, we're aggregating all of this data from all of these locations and we're going to build a mosaic of performance. And I looked at the license agreement. I'm like, that's really great. And you have no rights to do that with that data. And it wasn't, they weren't laughing. (laughs) Like, sure we do. It's really cool. Customers love it. I'm like, I'm not talking about the fact that your customers bought your module for data analytics and love it. I'm talking that it's kind of illegal and you can't do that. And they're like, what do we do? I'm like, okay, we're going to update the license agreement. We're going to go through a version upgrade. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then you're going to tell them and you're going to say you're sorry and you're going to not do it again, but you're going to talk about if people want to opt in, this is what's going to happen and we'll clean it up. 
and just got to come clean and clean it up. But that's the kind of stuff that happens. And I think that's what happens when software eats hardware. And there's a whole other set of aspects of it that we kind of help product people walk through. I've got my Wolf stove. Does it do remote updates? I don't know. Should it? Maybe not. What happens if the updates go wrong? Blah, blah, blah. Things that we feel comfortable with are new to the software eats hardware world. Oh, that's fascinating. And before wrapping up, two more questions. One, <laughs> if you want to dive in a little bit more of the solution lifecycle management, and I'd love to hear some more stories of the companies you've worked with. Well, solution lifecycle management just means I've launched my offering and I'm riding up the S-shaped curve of adoption. Hopefully for everyone, you skip the chasm and just keep going. And the solution lifecycle management is how do I adjust my business model over time? Sometimes the pricing is going to be adjusted because I'm moving from at launch, I might be doing penetration pricing. And as the solution becomes more successful, I might go to value-based pricing. So I'm changing my strategy, which is going to change my pricing model. And those elements are going to be coming in over time. The other thing that we talk about in the book is the notion of a profit engine. So the profit engine are the business model choices you make to create repeated transactions or larger transactions. It gets manifested often as I can build modules, I can build related solutions, I can replace the base, I can create software product lines, things that we feel very comfortable with on a technical side, but we want to roll that into the offering itself. So now more stories? Stories, of course. (laughs) Well, one company that we're associated with They started with a transactional business model and they built an entire system and they sold nothing because they were selling to CIOs. CIOs didn't want transactions. They wanted a flat fee. One of the things that we talk about in the book is that, and then this is part of the difference between software and hardware models, if you will, or just like selling a pen or a battery versus selling a software solution is that these business model choices get integrated into your technical architecture. They don't change and you get good at it. So if you're doing transactions, you're going to get good at transactions and getting good at transactions is different than getting good at time-based access or annual licenses or multi-term licenses. Both of those are different than say what Stitch Fix does, where I'm using a service model or a performance model. So this company started with transactions and they sold nothing. We're like, help. And so we kind of looked at the market and looked at the way the buyer wanted to buy. And we're like, you've got a good solution. They really want your solution. They're not buying it because they don't want variability in the cost. Switch to an annual license, give them a flat fee, and we'll see the sales. And in fact, work. It was my company, Contenio. <laughs> Which had a successful exit. Which had a successful exit once we changed the business model because the product was there. All right. And with that, if anyone wants to pick up a copy of your book, find out more what you're doing. What's the best way to go about doing that? Well, the website is profit-streams.com or hit us up tonight. Find us. We're not hard to find. Jason's over there. I'm here and we'd love to help. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com where we have this episode, our past episodes and information on what's to come. And with that, Luke, I want to thank you one more time for being the guest this week for a second time on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.